Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. As we continue to work our way through the life of Jesus, today we arrive at what scholars call the unknown years. And it's this period um, between the birth of Jesus and his ministry when it got started of about 30 years where we just simply don't know very much of what happened. Back on August 30th of this year, we kicked off our journey called A Year in the Life of Jesus. And over the last two weeks, we've looked at a couple different stories. The first one was Elizabeth and Mary, these two amazing women who gave birth to these two boys who changed the world. And then last week, we talked about the story of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the Christmas story that we're so familiar with. But today we arrive at his childhood and adolescent years. And we've kind of chosen to group all of those together in one Sunday because, again, We just don't have that much information about what happened during these years. Although, there are some stories about this time in Jesus' life that I'm guessing you've probably never heard. So I'm actually going to start by reading you a few of my favorites. Here we go. When the boy Jesus was five years old, he was playing at the ford of a rushing stream. And he gathered the disturbed water into pools and made them pure and excellent, commanding them by the character of his word alone and not by means of a deed. Then taking soft clay from the mud, he formed 12 sparrows. It was the Sabbath when he did these things and many children were with him. Sounds pretty good so far. The son of Annas, the scribe, had come with Joseph, and taking a willow twig, he destroyed the pools and drained out the water which Jesus had gathered together. And he dried up their gatherings. And Jesus, seeing what had happened, said to him, your fruit shall be without root, and your shoot shall be dried up like the branch scorched by a strong wind. And instantly that child withered. While he was going from there with his father Joseph, a child running tore into his shoulder And Jesus said to him, you shall no longer go our way. And the child instantly died. He was about eight years old, Jesus was, and Joseph saw his prudence and understanding and wished him not, and wished him to be more acquainted with the letters. So he handed him over to another schoolmaster and the schoolmaster said, say alpha. But the boy Jesus said, first, tell me what is the beta and I will tell you what the alpha is. Becoming irritated, the teacher struck him. Surely, Jesus, even though he's eight years old, he'll turn the other cheek here. But Jesus cursed him, and the teacher fell and died. And the boy went home to his parents, and Joseph called his mother and commanded her, Do not let him out of the house, so that those who make him angry may not die. Do not let Jesus out of the house, because he is killing everyone who makes him mad. These stories are from something called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, which scholars believe was written maybe in the second century. It's not a part of any biblical collection and has been deemed heresy by Christians for 2,000 years. And you can see why, right? It wouldn't surprise you, I'm sure, if I told you that the Infancy Gospel of Thomas has some pretty serious issues of authorship and sourcing and historicity, but we don't even need to know those things to know that these stories are false. They simply don't match up with what we know about the character of Jesus. 
I like Shane Claiborne said when he was on our summer mixtape this past year, they just don't pass the smell test. Now, it's much better in his East Tennessee accent, but I decided not to attempt that this morning. But seriously, guys, like Jesus withering a child who messes up his pools and and killing one who bumps into him, executing a teacher with a curse, Mary and Joseph having to put him under house arrest so he doesn't murder any more people, that sounds more like Voldemort than Jesus. This isn't the character of Christ. Quite the opposite, in fact. Jesus doesn't kill the people who upset him. He dies for the people who killed him. Listen to that again. Jesus doesn't kill the people who upset him. Jesus dies for the people who killed him. And when he was on the cross dying for those who killed him, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not even know what they're doing. Now, these stories from the infancy gospel of Thomas, they may seem kind of ludicrous to most of us. But there are a whole lot of stories being told about Jesus right now, today, that are just as problematic. But unlike the ones we just heard, many of these modern day stories are actually incredibly dangerous and damaging. Far too often, we have conformed Jesus into our image instead of allowing ourselves to be transformed into his Instead of pursuing the kingdom of God that he came to usher in, we have made Jesus a mascot for whatever worldview we hold or whatever ideology we're trying to propagate. Our cultural moment right here and now is filled to the brim with Christian language, but many times it is completely devoid of Christ. When so many opposing things carry the name of Jesus, it's hard to know what is truly Christ-like and what is not. Just think about it. The name of Jesus is currently being used by both Republicans and Democrats as the presidential election draws ever closer. It's being used by both protesters and counter-protesters all across the country. It's being used by Marxists and socialists and capitalists and fascists. It's being used by people who believe COVID-19 is a pandemic and people who believe COVID-19 is a plandemic. It's being used by people who shout law and order, and it's being used by people who shout defund the police. Those are just the ones I came up with off the top of my head. This is our current reality. Christians find ourselves pulled in a dozen different directions and often opposing directions by people claiming to follow Jesus, by people saying his name. So my question for us is this. In a world where so many different things use the name of Jesus, how do we discern what is Christ-like and what is not? How do you and I, Christians, followers of Jesus, discern where Jesus is and what he is doing and where he is not? This is actually one of the big reasons we're doing this year in the life of Jesus, because diving deeply into the words and work and teachings of Jesus help us understand what being Christ-like really looks like. We have to know what Christ is like in order to be Christ-like, both 2,000 years ago and today. Ultimately, intimately knowing Jesus helps us keep from making him into our image, and it helps us sniff out when other people are distorting Jesus to fit their narratives as well. See, when we truly understand, like deep down in our bones, who Jesus is and what he is about, we are better able to follow in his footsteps by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can discern where he is and where he is not. 
And our story today helps us do just that. Turn with me to chapter two of Luke's account of Jesus's life. Now, when we left off last week, Jesus was 40 days old. His parents had just presented him at the temple in Jerusalem, which was a custom for Jewish families at that time. Luke 2, verse 39 says, when Mary and Joseph had done everything required by the law of the Lord, when they finished this presentation of Jesus when he was 40 days old, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. That last sentence from Luke actually encompasses 12 years of Jesus's life. And the next verse begins our story for today. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, this is just kind of the introductory sentence, but it actually tells us a lot. We've been talking all throughout this year that these introductory sentences, specifically from historian Luke, they name the time and the place and cultural stuff for us, and we can learn a lot from them. So this introduction helps us understand what kind of family Jesus grew up in. They were devout Jews who traveled to Jerusalem every year to celebrate this festival. Luke had already mentioned multiple times in his account so far that both Mary and Joseph are folks deeply committed to the ways of God, to following him and everything that they do. Now, it also confirms for us that Jesus was poor. His family was poor. We saw a glimpse of this last week when we looked at the story of baby Jesus being presented at the temple. In verse 24 of chapter 2, Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be presented and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now you might say, Zach, how do you take that verse and then say that Jesus' family was poor? Well, we know from the Jewish law in Leviticus that that the required sacrifice for new moms was actually a lamb. When they had a baby, they were supposed to bring a lamb to the temple and sacrifice it. But in that same law, there was a special provision for poor families. Leviticus 12.8. But if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons. Mary couldn't afford a lamb. So she and Joseph brought two young doves and two pigeons. Now, this passage about the annual Passover trip gives us another indication of the family's socioeconomic status. Because you see, there were actually three festivals that Jewish folks were required to attend each year. But some families, they just couldn't afford to travel to Jerusalem three different times. So poor families would choose the Passover festival if they could only choose one. If they only had enough money for one trip a year, they were going to come for the Passover. And that's what Jesus did. Verse 43. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it, his parents. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. This scene reminds me of one of my very favorite movies, um, Home Alone, right? And it's actually kind of similar in quite a few situations. You see, like the McAllisters, Mary and Joseph's family, they traveled in a big group. They went all together. It's not like they were only with their own kids and they didn't notice when one was missing. Luke tells us they were with a group of relatives and friends. Now, it's also important to note that a 12-year-old boy in that culture would have had a lot of freedom, Now, even though the modern-day bar mitzvah wasn't around until the Middle Ages, this year, between 12 and 13 years old, has long been considered the ascendancy into adulthood for Jewish males. 
So Jesus was on kind of the precipice of adulthood. He would have been given a lot of freedom, both during the traveling time and once they were in Jerusalem, to go where he thought he should go, to spend time with who he wanted to spend time with. But even though it wouldn't have been uncommon for Jesus to be moving around on his own in Jerusalem, when they realize he isn't with the group headed back to Nazareth, Mary and Joseph understandably get worried and they start looking for him. Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, a lot of cool things are happening in this uh, passage, but it's important first to note that three days, it says, is probably longer than it was. I know if you're a parent, you're probably stuck on that thing. After three days, they found him in the temple courts. But remember, it said they'd already traveled back to Jerusalem or back toward Nazareth for one day. So that's one day they traveled, and then they traveled back. That's two days, and then one more day looking in Jerusalem before they find him. And when they find him, he's sitting with the best and brightest religious leaders of the time, listening, asking questions, answering questions, and dazzling everyone there with his wisdom at such a young age. But his parents aren't happy. Verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, it's very important to note that Luke actually mentions a couple of verses later that Jesus obeyed his parents fully as a child. And we know that Jesus was sinless, right? So he didn't do anything wrong. Luke, it's important for him to point it out here because he wants his readers to know that Jesus not only did, not only lived a completely sinless life, but actually didn't do anything wrong in this situation either. And I love that Jesus gets asked this question and then he answers with a question because if you know the story, he does this like throughout his life over and over and over again. It's classic Jesus answering a question with a question. Verse 49, why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, it's pretty cool. This is actually the very first time that Jesus speaks in the Bible. So it's probably worth paying attention to. Now, some translations, if you're following along in your Bible, say, uh, have Jesus saying, didn't you know I was in my father's house, which can work with the vocabulary and sentence structure here. But I believe the better translation is, didn't you know, I must be about my father's business. See, Jesus is using a little play on words here. He asks his earthly parents why they didn't realize he would be doing his heavenly father's business. But Mary and Joseph didn't know. Luke just said they didn't understand what Jesus meant. It seems that they had lost sight of who their son really was and why he was really on earth. Anglican theologian Donald Spence puts it like this. He says the 12 silent, uneventful years of life at Nazareth, the poor home, the village carpentry, the natural development of the sacred child had gradually obscured for Mary and Joseph the memories of the infancy. They had not forgotten them, but time and circumstances had covered them with a veil. Now they were very gently reminded by the boy's own quiet words of what had happened 12 years before. 
I love that. As Spence says, Jesus is gently reminding his parents of the true purpose, which was revealed to them by the angel Gabriel. If you remember when he said, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you were to call him Jesus, he will be great and he will be called son of the most high. You see, Jesus is the son of the most high God and he must be about his father's business. When I said earlier that we need to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is about, this is what I meant. He is the son of the most high God and he must be about his father's business. These first recorded words out of Jesus' mouth are a mission statement. He is God's son, the, the fullness of God in human body, as the apostle Paul would say later. And he is about his father's business. That's who he is. That's what he's about. So the natural question for us is, what is this father's business? Well, there are tons of beautiful explanations throughout scripture, but I think the most kind of concise and all-encompassing one comes from John's account of Jesus's life. Jesus is talking to a group and he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You see, God's desire is for every single person, no matter who they are or what they've done, to experience full and abundant life. That, my friends, is the Father's business. And that is what Jesus came to earth to accomplish. It's what he laid his life down to accomplish. Remember our question from the beginning? How do we discern what is Christ-like and what is not? Well, here's the answer. We ask everything bearing the name of Jesus this question. Does this help all humanity, no matter who they are or what they've done, experience a full and abundant life? Anything using religious language, anything carrying the name of Jesus, when we see it, we ask it this question. Does this thing help all humanity, no matter who they are or what they've done, experience a full and abundant life. And I don't care how pious or powerful someone is. I don't care what divine name or scripture verse they hide behind. Anything that prevents people from experiencing the full life Jesus desires for them is not from God. It is not from God. They may be waving a Christian flag and using Jesus as a mascot, but if they are hurting people and marginalizing people and oppressing people, it is not Christ-like. It is not remotely Christ-like. When that question becomes our filter, it becomes so much easier for us to see through all of the junk hiding behind the name of Jesus. This story of Jesus at the temple it serves as a reminder to us, just like it did to Mary and Joseph, that Jesus is not just a really exceptional kid. He's not just a, a brilliant teacher. He's not just a great man. Jesus is God's son, and he is about the Father's business. He came to bring full life to all people. It's what he laid his life down for. It's the mission he entrusted to his followers, to me and to you. Like I said at the beginning, there are a whole lot of people using religious language to spread worldviews and ideologies that Jesus would have called out and fought against when he was here on earth. And if we, if you and I truly desire to follow him, 
we must be ready to call out and fight against any garbage masquerading as gospel in our world today too. Like Mary and Joseph were that day, many of us are looking for Jesus. We're trying to find where he is, how he's working during times like these. And I'm here to tell you that whether it's 2,000 years ago in the temple or right here in the year 2020, we will always, always find Jesus about his father's business. So let's meet him there and let's join him in helping all people experience a full and abundant life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this one beautiful story. It's the only one we have from birth to the life and ministry of Jesus beginning when he was 30 years old. 30 years in one story, God, but it's a powerful one. It's a powerful one where the first words out of Jesus' mouth illuminate for us who he is and what he's about. The son of the most high God, the fullness of God dwelling in him. That's who he is. And what he is about is the father's business of helping all people, no matter who they are or what they've done, experience a full and abundant life. God, I pray that we as individuals and we as the church would join you there in helping people experience the fullness of life experience the blessing that you promised. We're about to sing all about it, this blessing that you have promised to all of your children. God, help us to be a part of not just experiencing it, God, but, but giving it away to everyone we encounter. And God, also help us identify all those places in our world today that are using the name of Jesus or using him as a mascot just to to prop up whatever worldview they hold. Just as much as you want to show us where Jesus is, God, I pray that you show us where he is not as well. And that we would be able to speak out, speak truth against those things and stand against anything that would get in the way of your business of helping anyone and everyone experience a full and abundant life. Empower us to do this by your spirit, we pray. Amen.